The latest salmonella concerns mark the United States' worst foodborne outbreak in over a decade. Exactly how are outbreaks of foodborne illness identified? What's the process that links food products to illness? And how can this outbreak be stopped? You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, a practicing general pediatrician and author. Our guest is Ian Williams, Ph.D., Chief of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's OutbreakNet, a network of epidemiologists and other public health officials who investigate foodborne outbreaks and other enteric illnesses. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you. Today we're discussing foodborne outbreak investigations. Before we get started, let's get back to the basics. And if you could please define for us what exactly is a foodborne disease outbreak? An outbreak is defined as two or more people who may be related to a, a common source. And we use that as a starting point of our outbreak definitions. Now, how might such an outbreak or cluster be detected? There are actually two common ways they're detected. One important way is actually due to reports to local or state health departments. And actually, that's how most clusters of illness are found, that clinician or a member of the public will call up their state or local health department and, and report a foodborne illness or a suspected foodborne illness. And then the state health department or the local health department will go investigate and find problems at the restaurant. The other way CDC finds about them, and the most of the ones we hear about, are actually through a system called PulseNet which is a network where clinicians provide isolates to a central database where we compare PFG patterns or fingerprints from the submitted isolates to look for commonalities. So it sounds like kind of an FBI database, but for medicine. Yeah, correct. The way this database works or PulseNet works is the clinician actually, when they identify a patient with a diarrheal illness, they then submit an isolate. And that isolate is then serotyped to determine what the etiologic agent might be. And then furthermore, they then actually perform pulse field gel electrophoresis or PFG to actually determine the genetic fingerprint. This is usually done through state health department labs. And then state health department labs forward these into a central database managed by CDC. Through this manner, we're actually able to detect clusters of illness all across the United States and, and link together outbreaks that have not been seen previously. Now, you mentioned that the CDC works with state health departments. Are there other organizations and agencies that, that work with you to investigate these outbreaks? Oh, absolutely. CDC's primary partners are state and local health departments because our role is really to investigate and determine if an outbreak has occurred and, and what might be causing it. We work very, very closely with other regulatory partners, such as the Food and Drug Administration, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Environmental Protection Agency. They're the regulatory agencies in the United States who actually regulate food industries. And once we identify what food might be causing illness, we work very closely with them to determine where the breakdown in the chain of production might have been from farm to the table, and, and also to take appropriate actions to withdraw the product from market. So let's talk about, you mentioned from the farm to the table, how do you reconstruct the history and, and get back to how and where the contamination occurred? Let's say you hear of a possible outbreak in California. What would actually happen? There are two ways to do this. The, the first thing is when we hear about a cluster of illness, we have no idea that it's even foodborne related. Lots of things can cause clusters of diarrheal illness that, that are not necessarily foodborne. And even outbreaks of things like E. coli and salmonella may be due to things such as contact with reptiles or visiting a petting zoo, for example. So, so step one is to determine what the cases might have had in common and determine if a food agent is a likely suspect. Once we do that, 
we perform the traditional epidemiologic process of orienting the cases with respect to person, place, and time, and conducting an epidemiologic study to determine what the cases might have in common and how this compares usually to healthy people to try to implicate a food item or other vehicle. Once we do that, we then again work with our regulatory partners to understand the process of where contamination might have occurred. And by looking at the characteristics of cases and understanding the distribution of the product, we can start to understand where the contamination may have happened in the restaurant or further up the supply chain or even all the way back to the farm. And our regulatory partners are very critical to helping us understand how the food is produced and shipped because as we're becoming more and more aware in the last decade we're a very globally interconnected food supply that's become quite complicated to understand. And we really rely on our partners there to help us understand this complex system. Now, you mentioned a lot of interesting points there. Why don't we move back a little bit and talk about when you get information from the cases and look for a a common theme, is there a survey that's used or an interview process? And do you also match them with controls? You said healthy people. How does that process work? It's a two-step process. The first process is actually talking to cases who are ill. And we usually call these hypothesis-generating interviews. Oftentimes when we talk to the cases, we know what the etiologic agent is. We know what the pathogen is. And by knowing something about the pathogen, whether it's E. coli or it's salmonella or it's listeria, it gives you some clues about things that might be related to the illness. And this is due to the history. We know previous outbreaks have been associated with certain products and certain events. So if you know it's E. coli, you're going to be looking more strongly at certain things. If it's salmonella, you're going to be looking at others. So usually what we do is we take a group of the cases and we do very in-depth interviews. We prefer to do these in the home, and oftentimes these are a mix of both structured and unstructured interviews. We have a common tool that we've developed that has over 200 different food items where we ask them about, if we're suspecting a food, where we ask them about lots of different food exposures in, in the week prior to illness, but we also ask about pet exposures, reptile exposures, lots of things that we know historically have been associated with these outbreaks. And then once you do that, you have an idea of what things might be in common among the cases. So this is really the first step. And then the second step is then to go further and explore those hypotheses you've generated in this longer interview to say, just because the cases may have all gone to the same restaurant, is that really unusual or not? And by doing this, we then find healthy people and ask them the same shorter set of questions that we do of the cases to determine what might be more frequently observed among the cases than among the healthy people or controls. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Hsu, and our guest is Ian Williams, Ph.D., We're discussing foodborne outbreak investigations. We're talking about case control studies and interviewing healthy people for their history. How do you go about finding healthy people who have a common history such as going to the same restaurant as some of the cases? There's actually two different methods typically for doing this. A common method is what's called a case control study. So these are are people who are like the cases, and we're trying to see if they have exposures in common or not. And there are several sources that we use. One is to try to use people of similar age from the same neighborhood. These can either be done in person where you go down the street and knock on doors around the neighborhood or do it by telephone through a reverse directory lookup program where you get people on the phone. That's more commonly used. Another method we actually use is to try to recreate the whole cohort of people. If it's, say, a restaurant and we know people got sick on one day, we try to identify as many people as possible who ate in the restaurant 
on that day and interview all of them and look at the differences among the people who got sick versus the people who didn't get sick. Now, if you do identify that it probably is a food-related illness, do you ever test the food itself for the bacteria? Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually one of the next steps is if you can implicate a food item, then the investigation really starts because then you need to try to understand, is it an ingredient in the food item or is it actually a method of preparation? There's an ill food handler who may have contaminated the food at the source. And again, by looking at the epidemiologic pattern of the cases and in relation to an environmental investigation done with, in say, a restaurant can give you many clues about where to look. Is it a common distributed product or is it more likely to be a problem that occurred right in the restaurant, like a cross-contamination issue, for example? Now, the salmonella outbreak that's going on right now has been called the worst foodborne outbreak in over a decade. In general, what kind of impact do foodborne illnesses have on public health? They actually have a tremendous impact. It's been estimated that one in four Americans get a foodborne illness every year. And as we've seen with this outbreak, this is at least a 1,000 people associated with this outbreak. And because we're relying on this PFG or pulse field gel electrophoresis to make sure the cases are all linked by fingerprint, we estimate as many as 30 more cases occur for every one of these laboratory confirmed cases we see. So this outbreak is actually probably many thousands of people out there who've gotten ill associated with this product. And that's why we're looking hard to find the product and remove it from the market. Of these many thousands of people who are ill, are there certain groups that are at higher risk for being infected? One of the things we've observed is there's certainly an interesting epidemiologic pattern or feature to this outbreak, and it's providing us clues that we're very closely examining. For example, the highest rates of infection are in Texas and New Mexico. We've noticed that some states have very, very few cases, such as California and Florida, who have large population centers but not many cases. And even by looking within states at where cases are occurring, whether they're in big cities or in rural areas, is providing clues for us to think about what might be responsible for this outbreak. So by looking at both the features of geography as well as the dates they occurred, um, how it spread across the country is providing many clues to us to try to say where we should be looking for the source of this outbreak. Now, we've been mainly focusing on the United States, but is anything similar being looked at worldwide? We actually work in close collaboration with both our public health partners in Canada and Mexico. To date, we've identified a small cluster of cases in Canada. However, among these people, we've actually learned that they've all traveled to the United States during their likely exposure period. So it's likely these cases were exposed actually in the United States. And to date, we're aware of no illnesses associated with this outbreak strain from Mexico. But we've also been collaborating internationally as well. We're letting our partners know in Europe and in Asia that this outbreak is going on and sharing this outbreak strain with them. So if they're seeing clusters of illness, which they haven't reported, we would know about it. Again, these would help provide clues as to what the ultimate source might be. Now, you mentioned some outbreaks associated with travel. Is it possible that patients who travel to another country can then transmit the illness to other people in that country? We actually do see a fair amount of travel-related illness and clusters among people. That is not a likely explanation for this outbreak, given that we've seen a large most of the people have not traveled in the week prior to illness outside their state of residence. I mean, we've seen a couple of people who have traveled, and we've seen a number of people, uh, several people who live in one state and they traveled to another and were likely exposed in that state and then went home and got ill at home. But at least in this outbreak, there is no evidence that people were requiring it outside the United States or at least consuming the food outside the United States. 
Now, once there's a known outbreak, what steps might be taken to intervene and halt the outbreak? The first step is to really try to identify a food item or vehicle that might be causing the illness. And then the next step is to quickly understand where the point of contamination is, again, between this continuum from it can be contaminated in the farm field or it can be contaminated all the way up to the point of service or in your home. So we're trying to then understand where the contamination is likely to have occurred and then to intervene at that point to basically remove potentially contaminated foods off the market. And in this situation, that's what our colleagues at FDA have been working very hard to try to do just that. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Ian Williams. We've been discussing foodborne outbreak investigations. I'm Dr. Jennifer Hsu. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com, featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.